Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got an old friend, Gary Cokins, with me. Hello, Gary, and welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Kevin. So, Gary, you described us a few minutes ago as we were chatting just before we started as British and American cousins, because we both kind of do the same things. So, Gary, tell me a bit about you. Well, a little bit or a lot. Let's see if we can keep it brief. Uh, First, I'm 73, but I feel like I'm 43. My career is over. It's now a vocation. Career, salary increases, job promotions, vocation. It's a calling. I'd like to make a difference, and we'll talk about that a little later. My undergraduate degree was Cornell University in industrial engineering and operations research, and I got my MBA at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. My career was in three-thirds. The first decade was in industry here, large manufacturing conglomerate in the U.S., then many, many years in consulting with Deloitte, KPMG, electronic data systems when they tried to get into consulting. And then I was 16 years with SaaS. Many don't recognize who SaaS is, but it's actually the world's largest privately owned software vendor in data analytics, data science. And I retired eight years ago. Right now, I'm just sort of having fun teaching, coaching people, inspiring people, hopefully, and a few consulting gigs from time to time. Brilliant. And I know that your two passions are EPM and ABC. So, Gary, EPM, what is it? Well, there's enterprise performance management, and it's also referred to as corporate performance management. They're pretty much synonymous. Public sector, government people don't like the word C, corporate. But to clarify, because there is confusion and lack of consensus, what is it? It's actually not a system or a process. It's really the integration of many methodologies, such as strategy map balance scorecard with KPIs, profitability reporting, typically using activity-based costing principles, driver-based budgeting, which basically morphs into rolling financial forecasts, enterprise risk management, process management using lean management, six sigma, all these moving parts. Think of them as gears in a machine. And when they're seamlessly integrated, they really bring the power for an organization to improve itself and actually make better decisions. Activity-based costing is a component within the EPM or CPM umbrella. Brilliant. Now, you've just described in a short sentence there virtually everything I teach inside Grow CFO. <laughs> All my favorite subjects. I think I've put a course together in every one of those things you've just mentioned. So, Gary, take us a bit further. Analytics-based enterprise performance management. Why as CFOs should we be worried about it? Not only worried, but concerned. Uh, And incidentally, you mentioned about your course. I I do a one-hour presentation on all of those. I call it an MBA curriculum in one hour. (laughs) That's a challenge, getting that lot in in an hour. (laughs) But I mean, if you go to the business schools in the US, Stanford, Kellogg, Harvard, the good ones in Europe, you look at their curriculum, you'll see all of those items are what they teach in two years. We're going to do it, you know, real briefly. Golly, what was your question just there? Question was analytics based oh. enterprise performance management. Why oh, as CFOs should we yeah. be worried about it? I think one of the reasons, and this may be a little offensive to some of the CFOs that are listening to me, I'm going to get in trouble here. But you know, I'm 73. What do I care? Oh, you can afford to get into trouble, Gary. 
<laughs> Many of the accountants and the CFOs are still in the 1960s. And the real issue is how do we get them into the 21st century? And what I mean by that is there's excess emphasis on external financial reporting, statutory compliance, and the like for you know government regulatory agencies like in the US, SEC, and investment community. Not enough emphasis on internal information that managers and executives use for insights and making better decisions. And so the reason they need to be concerned is if their competitors are adopting and implementing and seamlessly integrating all of these methods, they're going to have a competitive advantage. And, you know, you go out further out, there's a risk. This is an interesting observation. The older people listening to us will remember a book called In Search of Excellence, based on McKinsey's, you know, study. And in that book, they had 10 companies that made it through this hurdle screen that McKinsey came up with, the 10 greatest companies. You look at that list of 10, most of them are bankrupt or out of business. So the message is really, you can't rest on your laurels. Every new day is a new day and there's risks. So you've got to constantly be improving yourself. Yeah. So I'm thinking back to the 1960s and those accounts, Gary, I suppose they devolved over centuries and they were the way they were because we didn't have any IT. We had manual ledgers and therefore it only allowed you to record the numbers in one particular way. And you had to put statutory reports together. You had to put tax reports together. And our institutes decided, well, there's got to be some standard way of putting these things together. So that the results from company A, you can compare with the results from company B. And a taxman wanted to see certain things on certain lines of the tax return. So you developed this in- entire accounting system entirely focused on parties external to the business. When I think about 90% of the use of the financial numbers should be for the internal management of the business. You're absolutely correct. And I do a lot of writing for different organizations. One of them is the International Federation of Accountants, IFAC. They're in New York City. They are like the United Nations of global accounting institutes. There's probably 180, SEMA in the UK, AICP, so forth. So one of the reports or papers I wrote from them is a taxonomy of the big world of accounting, just like in biology, plant kingdoms, animal kingdoms. And in the taxonomy, I've kind of got the three kingdoms, but from left to right, tax accounting, external financial reporting, internal management accounting. And at the very bottom, I have a value spectrum. And the value of accounting information increases as you go from left to right. So, you know, those that are just basically closing the books and doing the compliance and all of the ledger stuff, journal entries, you know, that's a lower value than management accounting, which has a higher value. Now we have to make a distinguish. When you do management accounting, as you very well know, you will not necessarily have to follow those rules, commonly called generally accepted accounting principles gap, that are used for external financial statutory reporting. You know, as an example, overhead allocations for gap, all right, you could just take all the overhead allocated on some sort of denominator that's convenient, like in manufacturers, number of labor hours, sales dollars for a service organization, headcount, whatever, and you get away with it. It reconciles to the penny or to the euro or whatever is your currency, you're done. Hmm. But for management accounting, you don't want to follow those rules. You basically want to model reality. 
And I use the word modeling because costing is modeling. It's not T accounts and journal entries. You're modeling how the final, the output products, services, customers, channels uniquely consume the end end processes and the expenses that are consumed from them. I confuse people, but I say, look, expenses and costs are not the same thing. Expenses is when the organization exchanges money with third parties or pays employees. Currency exits the treasury, just like writing a check. All costs are calculated. So you calculate a process cost, you calculate an activity cost, you calculate a product, a service line. And so when we're modeling, we're not going to have to follow those rules. And the net result, as you well know, when you compare the much superior internal management accounting, typically using activity-based costing principles, the difference between that butter spreading, the magnitude of the error can be 30, 40, 50%. Some of the products are way overcosted. The others must be undercosted because it's a zero-sum error game. It still reconciles to the penny, to the dollar, to the euro, whatever the currency, but it's wrong in the parts. And here's my point. This is back to your question. Why should CFOs care? If they're not doing these progressive methods, they're underserving their line managers and employee teams with flawed and misleading information. And they're stuck with having to use that stuff. Or they have their own little set of books on the side because they know that the CFO has got basically complying with external reporting and they need the internal management. So they have their own little management accounting system on their own in the marketing department, in the project department, in the process department, not coming from the CFO. I've got a lovely little example that I use in some of the teaching courses, Gary, that really emphasizes that. Now, it starts with the problem that you've got a, a group of managers sitting around the table and they've only got two products, very simple company. One is their nice basic product that they've been selling for years. Number two is their super duper advanced product that they sell at a premium price that they're really trying to push. They can't understand why that they're selling more and more of this lovely new product. Revenue is going up fantastically, but profit is falling. And then we go in and we have a look at the way the costs are allocated between the two products and discover that they're just allocating overheads on some very old fashioned basic things. But when you actually get down to it and look at the activities involved, the activities that drive the costs for each product, you realize that actually product A was way overcosted and was making a much bigger profit than anybody thought. And product B was way undercosted and they were actually making a loss on every unit they sold. Absolutely. And the problem is because of for product A, competitors will have much more intelligence, will basically just price 5 or 10% below you. And so they're starting to basically steal market share from you. Yeah. And then what the sales force is left with, oh, well, we'll just sell a lot more of this really big one that they think they're making more money, but the more they sell, the more you lose. So that's why revenues are increasing and margins are flattening off or dropping and no one can answer why. It's because of this cost allocation back to the 1960s. Yeah. Thinking about enterprise performance management, you mentioned things like balanced scorecards, KPIs, and so on. If we're in a, a company that hasn't adopted those sorts of things, where do you start? Well, I'm a practitioner. And as you may know, I've been implementing these methods for you know many years. I am a big advocate of a method called rapid prototyping with iterative remodeling. And what that means is start just have a workshop with five or six or seven cross-functional employees in a room 
and very quickly build a high-level strategy map with a balanced scorecard. You know, and that's the Kaplan and Norton approach. There are also other yeah. strategy maps, but you know, that's the simple one with the four perspectives: learning and growth, to process, to customer, to financial. You do it very quickly. Same thing with activity-based costing. Just two to three activities per cost center. Just take average salaries for the entire company. Just do percentage splits for the activities over a year, 30, 30, 40, 10, 10, 80, as long as that adds up to 100%. Same thing. Here's my point. Then the second day, bring in the executives and line managers so they can see what just got constructed. And the light bulbs will go on with everybody. Oh, that's how we get rid of that butter spreading. Oh, that's how we can actually see our true profit margins. Oh, that's how we could actually see customer profitability, which we should talk about before this our podcast is over. So everybody kind of gets it. And then you can do iterative remodeling for the next few days, a little deeper, a little more granular, start bringing in some data. And within two to three weeks, you will have a permanent repeatable activity-based costing production system. You'll have a permanent repeatable strategy map with balanced scorecard identification to KPIs. And so where I'm really going at is many of the barriers that CFOs have to basically try to implement or think about implementing is these is, oh, it's too difficult. Oh, it'll take too long. Oh, the benefits won't exceed the administrative effort to do it. And so we've got to get rid of that disbelief, that misconception and be much more practical. And you know, with as you know, with ABC, the famous line is it's better to be approximately correct than precisely inaccurate. You know, you don't need super precision when you're doing management accounting, you know, for external reporting, yes. If the CFO gets the numbers wrong, they go to jail. Yeah. But with management accounting, if they get the numbers wrong, they don't go to jail. So that's that's so true. And I I can I can think of the practical examples with a client when I've started doing some activity analysis and I've started asking the say the customer service desk, what do you spend your time doing? Oh, do you want us to start putting timesheets together? No, I don't want you to start putting timesheets together. Just tell me in big handfuls on these. Well, first of all, let's start and work out what are the five or six big things that you do are. So list those down right now. Okay. Rough, rough idea. What percentage of your day do you spend on each one? Because in reality, if you've put 35% down against one activity, you're going to get, and we're going to go on and talk customer profitability and things. Now, will customer profitability be much different? in terms of making a decision whether that 35% you put down was the right number or it was 33 and a half or 36 and a quarter. Now, sometimes I think that when you're doing activity-based costing, accountants are the wrong people to do it because they're too flipping accurate. (laughs) No, precise. They want to be accurate, but they're just preoccupied with precision. And, And as you may know, the accuracy of the products and standard service lines has is primarily driven by the construction of what we call the cost assignment network. Those relationships between the various salaries and the three or four activities and the drivers. So the accuracy comes from modeling a good model, not by timesheets are the last place to go. Employees hate timesheets and you don't need them. No, you don't. I think it's worth thinking in a modern organization that's possibly more of a service business than a manufacturing business. And manufacturing is where ABC started. Understanding what people spend their time doing is 90% of the battle because nearly every cost you've got will in some way be driven by people. Absolutely. Well, people and equipment, assets can do activities as well. You know, men and women run machines, machines make products, men and women drive buses, buses deliver passengers. So the assets, 
But I want a couple observations about manufacturing being the origin of ABC. In the United States, roughly eight out of every 100 jobs makes products. The other 92 do not. So the majority of organizations that really need ABC are service-oriented. They don't, banks, insurance companies, travel agencies, you name it, they don't have a tangible output. It's an automobile loan. It's a travel reservation. But the same methodology still applies. You want to know, you know, which products make or lose money. Can we, let's briefly talk about customer profitability. Absolutely, Gary. Let's talk customer profitability because that to me is where this goes. It goes, and I actually think it's going to basically pull interest and activity-based costing into where it should have been years ago. My premise is this. Customers are the source of financial wealth creation for shareholders and owners. So you have to start at the customers. Now, part of the problem is many customers view their suppliers as commodities. Therefore, you know, banks all have the same type of depository accounts and so forth. Therefore, for a supplier to be competitive, they really need to provide differentiated services to different segments of customers and then basically figure out what offers, coupons, deals, price discounts to offer. Because what the sales and marketing people want the answer is, what type of customer is most attractive to retain, to grow, to win back and acquire? Which types of customers are not attractive? And now comes this other misconception. The simplistic view is, oh, sales volume is synonymous with profit. So our largest sales customer in volume is our most profitable. No. Because, you know, often called devil customers and angel customers, you know. Practical experience there. And I'm thinking about when I first discovered activity-based costing, Gary, right back when I was working in the chemical industry, is that 80% of your profits come from 20% of your customers. Pareto yeah. is just so true in everything we do here. Yeah. And that's the whale curves that made people are familiar with, you know, the whale curve where the profit goes up, levels out. And then it declines where you actually lose money. But the misconception still is big, high sales customers are the most profitable. I mentioned devils and angels. The devil customers are really high maintenance customers, always changing schedule, delivery schedule, uh, never buying standard, only want special, always calling help desk, always returning goods. The angels, we love them. Only by standard, never shift schedule, never call. So if those two customers bought the same volume, same mix, same price, they're not equally profitable because the high maintenance one is really eroding a lot of your profit, really. So let me just jump forward. There are some few, it's very embryonic, at least what I've observed in the United States, people, companies that are doing customer profitability are changing the commission sales structure incentive for the sales force. So it's no longer 100% sales volume. It's like 60% sales, 40% profit for each customer. So when the sales manager director is having their account planning meeting, they're setting targets, commissions for their sales force based on a blend. And what does that do? That means the salespeople, and they start figuring this out because they want that money to pay for their household and their family and all that stuff. They start figuring out, how do I make my customer more profitable, not just sell them more? And there's a whole bunch of techniques, which would be a whole other podcast, how they can do that. But it's back to customers of the source of value creation to shareholders and the accountants are not connecting it. Why? Because they're stopping halfway in the income statement with the gross profit P&L. They're not going below 
that line includes selling expenses, distribution expenses, marketing expenses, customer service expenses. Yeah. And now we're launching at the moment in Grocery we're launching Strategy Bootcamp. One of the key things that we're getting to in Strategy Bootcamp is just simply helping people to get to a decision that is, what am I going to start? What am I going to stop? And what am I going to keep doing? And what we're talking about there is just so fundamental to it, because if it holds true that 20% of your customers will generate 80% of your profit, well, you need more customers like that. You need to go find more stuff like that. So you've got to recognize which of those customers are. The flip side holds true. It's exactly what you've been talking about in those customers that are forever ringing the help desk and whatever. That's chances are if you if you flip the 80-20 the other way around, that 20% of your customers will more than likely generate 80% of the cost. And they're probably they're sitting in that stop column. You want to get rid of those or do something radically about how you service them. Yes. You're going to have unprofitable customers unbeknownst to anybody, although some people suspect it, but the accountants are measuring and calculating it. So yeah, you there's a couple of choices. At the extreme, you could fire the customer, you know, abandon them, let your let them go to a competitor, let them lose money. But the alternative is how do I even make an unprofitable customer less unprofitable? You can do it incrementally by, you know, streamlining services and similar methods or fee-based charges. You know, when they do all that extra work, charge them a fee. Look, the airlines are charging us for baggage. And if you want to move from a middle seat to an aisle seat, but at least you got to have the facts. Let me make a point about facts. In the absence of facts, anybody's opinion is a good one. I'll repeat that. In the absence of facts, anybody's opinion is a good one. But usually the biggest opinion wins, which is the opinion of the boss or the boss of the boss. So to the degree they're relying on gut feel or intuition or flawed and misleading information, the organization's at risk. And now we're back to that In Search of Excellence book where 10 of the companies in that book are no longer in existence. They're bankrupt. Yeah. I think you can take that analogy a little bit further, Gary, and you can say, hang on a minute, the sales folk, these particular type of people, and by the way they come through, they can convince most people that black is actually white. So that sort of character, personality sets, and so on are going to be the exact ones that are going to give you the opinion that isn't necessarily backed by fact. And it seems very good. The standard finance person has probably the opposite persona. And unless they have all the facts and all the numbers, they're not going to put a valid opinion forward. So you've got to put those numbers together in a solid and understandable way. And when you do present them, you can put revelations into the business. But understanding, that's a key because a lot of financials reporting is outside the comfort zone of line managers and others. The reason I love modeling, because even the balanced scorecard is really a model. The strategy map is where it comes from. The balanced scorecard is just the feedback mechanism from the strategy map. But it's a model on a single pitch. Costing is modeling. And it's understandable to most people, especially the process people. And I also want to make another point. You know, we haven't talked about cost reduction or cost management. There's another group that gets some benefit from this. And this is the process improvement people, the lean management, the Six Sigma people. They don't particularly care about strategic information. You know, they don't really care where do we make money or lose money, which customers are more or less profit. That's for someone else, but they do care about taking out waste, cycle time reduction, and the like. And so tools will like 
activity-based costing allows you to tag or score activities as value-added, non-value-added, and the like. They start getting cost equality, prevention, appraisal, internal failure, external. They start getting visibility to costs. You had made the point, the question is, what should we be doing more of and what should we be doing less of? That's where the process improvement people come into play. You know, do less of this, do more of that. Yeah. And if you've determined there are a group of customers that you shouldn't be serving anymore, if you've properly costed them using something like activity-based costing, it points you straight away to the places in the business that you need to be then using zero-based budgeting to get the cost out. Yeah. Well, now you've moved to the predictive view when you'd mentioned budgeting. I always say there's two views. When you're looking through the rear view mirror, that's actually pretty I mean, it's nice to basically get reasonably accurate using ABC principles. But when you're going through the windshield, now you have to start thinking like an industrial engineer as, as I yeah. am, because you got to classify the resources capacity as sunk fixed variable. And each decision that, well, that classification depends on the planning horizon, because in the short term, capacity is not easily adjustable. But as you in move the, out- In the very short term, everything's fixed. Yeah, yeah. But as you go out weeks, months, years, you can replace full-time employees with temporary contractors. You could lease assets that you normally would have bought. But my my whole point is driver-based, rolling financial forecast, what-if scenario analysis, capital budgeting and you know, analysis for justification. All of that stuff is the predictive view. And again, that's a little bit outside the comfort of the traditional accountant that doesn't really understand the economics of sunk fixed variable that kind of stuff. So I know we're short of time. I think there's one other item, well, two I'd like to bring up. One's leadership. I know there's a hundred books on leadership and I'm not an expert in it, but there's one thing I am observing. In the past, the best leaders and best executives had the best answers. Today, I do not think that's the case. Today, I think the best leaders and best executives have the best questions. There is too much complexity. There's too much volatility. There's too much uncertainty for those executives to rely on their gut feel intuition or the types of answers they had earlier in their career that got them promoted to the top. They need to create a culture of investigation and discovery using analytics and tolerance for making mistakes as long as you learn from the mistakes. So leadership has a role here. So I just wanted to get that up. I want to talk about my frustration. I was just going to ask you about your frustration because I know what that is. It's that not enough companies are adopting this stuff. Well, there's many reasons. The slow adoption rate, it's pretty pathetic. I mean, you know, Kaplan, Professor Robert S. Kaplan, Harvard Business School, you know, wrote Relevance Lost, what, in the 1970s and kind of documented research what's activity-based costing. And I have empirical evidence that only about 90 Oh, five to ten percent of companies that should be using ABC are doing it. They're all still spreading the butter for overhead allocations, and overhead's very substantial. There's three types of barriers slowing the adoption rate. One is technical, dirty data, low quality data. But the IT people know how to fix that with something called extraction, transform, and load ETL. The second barrier, as I mentioned earlier, is this misperception that it's too complex, it's too big, it's too messy. The benefits won't exceed the effort to put it together. So, and that can be solved with rapid prototyping, iterative remodeling, proof of concept pilot. The real obstacles got nothing to do with systems, software, technology. It's about people. It starts with resistance to change. It's human nature. You know, you know, people love the status quo. Only babies like change, you know, diapers. Other obstacles, fear of others knowing the truth. Oh, I'm a product manager. 
my product's the most profitable. Oh, this ABC thing is going to show it's not as profitable. I don't want anybody to know that. Another barrier, fear of being held accountable, fear of being measured. And I'll say it, weak leadership. You know, not every executive team's got the highest IQ. So my point is, none of those have got anything to do with software technology. What it means is, if you really want to successfully implement these, you've got to have some behavioral change management skills. And very few accountants and CFOs have those skills. They don't have degrees in sociology or psychology. I'll just summarize. I refer to there's two types of managers, Newtonians and Darwinians. And many of the accountants are Newtonians like Isaac Newton, you know, the physicist, the world's a big machine. Just give me the pulleys, levers, dials. You need to be somewhat Darwinian, sense and respond. It's an organism if you want to create change. I can tell, Gary, that you are incredibly passionate about that. But now, I'm looking behind you on the, the screen you've got up, if anybody's watching. For those people that are just listening to the audio here, what it says on Gary's background is the Profitability Analytics Center of Excellence. Yes. Gary, what's that all about? Yeah, this is a not-for-profit that was originated about two years ago by five of us. We're the directors who are share this frustration, and we're all 60 years and older, like, what's taking so long? And so I encourage anybody if they can just, even if they just kind of like Google Profitability Analytics Center of Excellence, you'll find a website. There we have, we have some different interest groups. We have software interest groups. We have consultant interest groups, and they meet every couple of weeks to discuss how to collaborate. Even though they're competitors, they're all got the same. They want to grow the pie, not compete for the slice of the pie. In the forum are many blogs and articles. I've authored quite a few of them. It's basically a platform for organizations that want to improve. And we have a framework in the Profitability Analytics Center of Excellence that can be useful for how to basically kind of think of it as a roadmap to get to this full vision that we're describing here. So let's say there's a CFO listening to this now and a light bulb has just gone on. So think about that roadmap. What might that CFO do in the next 100 days to start going down that journey? Well, one step is prioritizing. You know, you have to kind of look, where are we deficient? You know, do employees not understand the strategy? We're not measuring the right things. All right. That means strategy map balance scorecard for strategy management. If we don't know where we make or lose money, which customer more or less profit, that basically is a signal we need to basically improve the management accounting system, typically using ABC principles. Budgeting and planning. If we're not very good at, you know, really understanding the impact of a decision, that means we need to basically go there. Where I'm getting at is first you need to prioritize. But then in the hundred days, I already said you can get ABC in in three weeks. So if you start with ABC, you got that in in three weeks. All right. Next month, let's go do strategy map balance scorecard. Get that in. All right. Now that we've got that in, now let's do driver-based budgeting. What I'm getting at is in a hundred days, you could actually get several of these gears into place. Mm. And now I'll use the word, the acronym RPM, revolutions per minute. Now let's start spinning faster these yep. gears. And here's an analogy. If you put broken gears and disengaged gears in your car, your automobile, what's your fuel efficiency? Pretty low. Now replace them with titanium gears spinning at faster, you know, digitized, lubricated. Now put that in your car engine. What's your fuel efficiency? Much higher. Now replace the metaphor analogy of fuel efficiency with rate of shareholder wealth creation or owner creation. 
that's what this is all about. Yeah. I think the key thing here, you talked about rapid prototyping, Gary. Now, if you're going to rapid prototype, you can put a version of each of these together very quickly in three to four weeks. And we talked earlier about this isn't a precise science. Good enough's good enough. So you might develop a version one in three to four weeks. It gives you roughly the right answers. But in that rapid prototyping, you realize where the flaws are, where you need some more information. Version two of that could well be your titanium gears. Absolutely. I always say make your mistakes early and often, not later when it's too hard to change. So the dilemma, the old way you bring in the consulting firm and nothing against the consultants. In fact, the consultants are important because they can do something that companies can't do, focus. You know, they get the statement of work, they can focus. But they often basically said, well, let's take six months and timesheets and all that stuff. And so once the model is delivered, it's so large, it's hard to change. What you just described with version one, version two, version three, is you start basically refining, replacing. And when you know the nice thing about having a version one precede is you can look and say, where do I need to go deeper? Where am I good enough where I'm at? You know, so um, I've also seen a mistake made in in this that the first question somebody asks is, okay, we're going to do activity-based costing. Which software package do I buy? Or we're going to put a balanced scorecard in. Which software package are we going to buy? I'd say to that is, forget <laughs> that question until later. An Excel spreadsheet is good enough until you've worked out what it is you're trying to measure. Totally agree. There are about 10 to 15 commercial ABC software vendors. And in fact, if someone, I'd like to give you the audience, my email address and website, I can send some of this to them. And of course, Oracle, IBM, Infor, the big boys, have SAP, all have a module that can do activity-based costing. But I agree with you, Kevin. First, basically get your model design. You can do that in a spreadsheet. And then, then you start using a more flexible commercial tool. My website is www.garycokins.com, G-A-R-Y-C as in clock, O-K-I-N-S. And my email address is gcokins at garycokins.com. And you're more than welcome to invite me in LinkedIn to connect. I know Kevin, you're going to put some of this information in the yeah, notes. That'll all be in the show notes. There'll be a link to those, the Gary's website and email and uh, to his LinkedIn account in the show notes. Gary, that was brilliant. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO show. Uh, it was a privilege. And uh, I watch the Grow CFO, I observe it quite often. So let me just end on this one statement and then we can sign off. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And that is a great way to sign off. Thank you (laughs) once again, Gary. 